This week on the Back Table Podcast. I think a lot of places all around the world who do microcial repair, a lot of them do it as a team, not just a team of audiologists and, and other ancillary uh, individuals that are helping take care of the patient, but as a as a team of surgeons. I think it reduces the time in the operating room and, and you can also improve the outcome because you're working in tandem together and then all the little increases that go with recreating a framework, you can bounce things off of each other all the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist. And I'm here today with a very special guest. I have Dr. Dave Setabut. He's a pediatric otolaryngologist from East Texas, practicing in Bangkok, Thailand. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at Tamasat University Hospital. Dr. Setabut is the Vice Dean for Student and International Affairs at Chulabourn International College of Medicine. And he is here today to talk to us about building a microtia program in Thailand. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hi, Gopi. How are you? It's so good to see you. So uh, just for our listeners, um, Dave and I met um, on the interview trail for fellowship. And I remember we connected or bonded over the fact that I, I was just like, oh, there's other, there's a lot of other Asians in East Texas. I'm from Northwest Louisiana from Shreveport. And yeah. so it's probably been, I feel like maybe 12 years. <laughs> yeah, it has been a long, long time. Yeah. So uh, and tell me exactly where in East Texas, Tyler? Well, no, I'm from Jasper. So we are about an hour from Shreveport. Shreveport is the big city for Jasper, Texas. Mm. We, we do have casinos there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us first, how did, you know, you're here to talk to us about the Microtia program in Thailand. Uh, before we get to that, just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got to, to practice and start building a program there. Sure, Gopi. So, um, you know, when I finished fellowship, my fellowship kind of concentrated on pediatric uh, craniofacial and cleft and cleft lip and cleft palate, and then also uh, microtia. And so I finished fellowship and, you know, after I finished fellowship, I kind of took a year off a little bit and I moved back, kind of back to Thailand. I actually never had permanently lived in Thailand, but uh, my family was from Thailand and uh, my parents retired and so they moved back. And then I kind of was there and... I think the parents are older and then kind of that was really what, what brought me back to Thailand. Then I, I was in New York for a little bit and then um, kind of life happened, having kids and, and things like that. So we just decided to move to Thailand uh, to be closer to my family. And that's kind of where I started and, and kind of what brought me back there and then trying to be able to practice that. And so um, in your fellowship, did you have uh, microtia training and exposure? I f you know, because not all of the pediatric Odo fellowships, you know, have that or they might have some exposure, but it's hard to then yeah. go out and say, this is, yeah. this is my specialty. So, you know, I did my fellowship at uh, University of California, Davis uh, in Sacramento. And then part of my time was with uh, Dr. Brian Rubenstein, who is out of Kaiser, right, just right outside of Sacramento. And he does have a, a really big, robust microtia practice. And so he attracts a lot of uh, patients in that, that entire region. So both microtia and otoplasty had a very kind of 
good experience from from my time with uh, Dr. Rubenstein, um, and he was kind of my mentor during during all of all of that, and and kind of what exposed me to microtia because, uh, like Obi said, you know, in residency, I never was really exposed to microtia. I think we all learn about microtia. It's one of the intricacies of, of ENT that we 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 learn about all the grading and, and all of that, but actually to uh, get my hands a little bit dirty and doing some some microtial repair was really in fellowship and I was exposed to that there. So yeah, so it, I think it it did have a, a very good, strong experience and was able to do a good amount of cases. And so when you guys decided, okay, life happened, we're going to move uh, back to Thailand, our family's there. Did you reach out to the university hospital there? Did you know a pediatric otolaryngologist? And how did that sort of happen? Sure. So, you know, when I moved back, so initially I had a connection at the university. So when I completed fellowship, I kind of took a year off, but I kind of was, I acted like as a kind of, I guess, a visiting professor for a year at, at this university. Um, and this university I had previous ties to because my, um, my dad actually used to work there. And so that's kind of what we, what brought me there initially. And then they were actually opening a curriculum in medicine in English. So it was actually the first college of medicine that, that taught, taught it in English. And so that kind of segued into an opening for me to assist with the medical school. Um, and then in doing so, um, you know, I got involved and worked with obviously the, the otolaryngology department. Um, and then when I made the decision to move, move back to Thailand, uh, after working in New York, they welcomed me back to, to the, to the staff at the hospital. And I will say, you know, pediatric otolaryngology in Thailand, um, we have about very small number, you know, uh, for the entire country, we have maybe about 15 or so fellowship trained and fellowship trained, um, you know, a lot of. Fellowship training, they, they did a lot of observerships in the United States after they finished ENT residency in Thailand. Uh, the only, there's only one pediatric otolaryngology fellowship in Thailand, and it has only been open for about two to three years. So it is definitely still a new practice amongst otolaryngology. Uh, so, so I've been, you know, it's been great to work with pediatric otolaryngologists here and kind of rowing that program in and out in and of itself as well, I think. Yeah, that's awesome because you're contributing to the medical uh, education, the medical student education, as well as helping to build a pediatric laryngology program, a department fellowship. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So in terms of specific to the microtia program there, um, who's, on your, who's on your team? Do you have like a, a team um, that you work with? So, you know, I will say that I do have a team in terms of I have one of my co-surgeons. She's actually a facial plastic surgeon who I befriended when I had moved back to Thailand. Um, and I think I learned that aspect of teamwork because uh, Dr. Rubenstein also, when he did microtia repair, him and uh, his kind of co-surgeon from actually Kaiser in um, Oakland, uh, they would actually do all of their, their microtia cases together. So when I think uh, kind of that, tag team work of, of, of doing microtial surgery, um, I kind of tried to recreate here in Thailand. And so um, she uh, has a lot of experience, obviously, with uh, harvest for her rhinoplasties. 
And so we're able to work together and simultaneously. And I think it also helps, you know, from a, especially when you're building a practice to have a co-surgeon to bounce ideas off of and uh, bounce, you know, specific aspects of, of techniques, you know, don't forget this, don't forget that. And, and so in, in that regards, um, uh, we, we built a, a teamwork for that. In terms of other aspects of, you know, uh, the microtia repair, I think it might be a little bit sporadic. You know, we do have the general audiologist that's part of our otolaryngology head and neck surgery department, and, and she does our um, hearing examinations, audi- audiograms, et cetera. The other interesting thing that is a little bit different in Thailand that we have to take into account is that, um, you know, we see a lot of microtia patients who are typically just unilateral. And so we see that more than uh, those who are bilateral. So in Thailand, when you have a unilateral microtia repair, you have that uh, kind of unilateral conductive hearing loss and the, the opposite ear is normal. The government does not financially support hearing aid for the, for the uh, contralateral ear. So we don't do a lot of workup in terms of, uh, you know, considering like a Baja or even a band, like a bone anchored hearing aid, just because, you know, at the university, a lot of my patient population is um, indigent population. So they use government support, you know, government funding, I guess, the terminology, but so they wouldn't be in the bracket to be able to afford the hearing aid um, out of pocket because per the, per the regulations, they would not be able to have that reimbursed. So I, I think that in that aspect, that takes that, there, that, that window of hearing a little bit out. Do y'all, I mean, this is kind of a little bit now, um, but uh, for school and stuff like that, do you have the, are you able to help do preferential seating? Do the teachers have FM, schools have FM systems? Are those options for these kids? You know, we do always uh, are able to, write notes, uh, you know, medical certificates that kind of support, you know, sitting in the front row of the classroom. But, you know, I haven't had experience with any of my patients with FM devices uh, in the school setting. So there is there is a little bit of that gap, I think, with um, the care that we were able to provide, especially those patients who rely on, on government. So I guess some of that uh, kind of workup that we would, you know, investigate further, we, we probably don't do because might not change the attitude that they there's meaning work up meaning like cts for potential atresioplasties and other yeah you know i think it's it's basically like they'll get the uh initial so so most of the patients say they sell their teoe and you know on the the, the contralateral side is normal we might get an avr at most you know, to further delineate details about the, the, the hearing loss, even though we kind of assume and know that it's a, a going to be a significant conductive hearing loss on the microtic ear. Um, but I think it kind of ends there because we're probably not going to be able to uh, amplify the, the microtic ear in, in that regards. In terms of um, CT scan imaging for, for further uh, consideration for atresioplasty, there are a few surgeons in the country that, that do atresioplasty, but, but very few and, and I think very select cases. So, you know, a lot of my patients 
Uh, none of my patients, I can tell you, have, have elected to pursue an atresioplasty. But I think obviously as, as, you know, we have a new colleague that is fresh out of uh, otology fellowship and they're interested in pursuing that. So, so that could definitely change in, 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 the, in the next uh, few five to 10 years, I think. And since we're talking about uh, hearing tests, um, is there a universal newborn hearing screen or how many of the kids actually come to you? And we'll talk about, I guess, and in, in to kind of uh, before you even answer that, when do you even see these these kids? Are you seeing them in the in the nurseries? And, you know, I guess it also depends on where your patients are coming from or sure. how the patients um, come to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, with my patient population, most of my patients are referred to me. So they are a little bit older. So at one point in time, I've been in Thailand now for about almost seven years now. Part of my stint when I was here, um, kind of right maybe a year or two after I had just moved here, I also worked as a consultant at the only pediatric hospital in Thailand, which is a public hospital um, in the center of the city. So they get a big crux of basically all that treat all of the indigent care for, for central Thailand. Uh, so I was there for three years and, you know, I had a significant interest in microtia. So all these patients would kind of be sent to me. Uh, then when I left, just because I had so many obligations with my other, other work that I was doing, um, I kind of carried on and took those patients back to the university as well. And then, so children from the, the university, I'm sorry, the, the, the children's hospital, they also send those patients that they encounter that are my, my crochet patients to me as well. So I kind of have those as my two, those as my two kind of sources of patient population. And again, I think in terms of the incidence of the newborns of microtia babies that I see is maybe one or two a year that are born actually at my hospital. Um, and, but the rest are kind of referrals that they're a little bit older from, from elsewhere. And is there a universal newborn hearing screen? Yeah, so it's interesting. So universal newborn hearing screen has only been around for, I would want to say, less than 10 years uh, in Thailand. Um, and interestingly enough, I was, um, so, uh, the residents, when they graduate in, in Thailand, they have to do a research project. And there was a resident from Southern Thailand who did his research project on, uh, looking at the impact of, uh, the newborn universal hearing screen and, and really how, how has that changed the care that, that children were getting? And it's interesting enough is that even though where we were diagnosing kids with hearing loss, were we doing anything different about it? Are we changing our management? Were they, were they able to get amplified sooner? Were they able to get a diagnosis sooner? Were they able to get any further care? And the initial study from a, a single center in, in Southern Thailand was that there was still a significant delay and gap, meaning we were, yes, we were diagnosing children with, with hearing loss, but we weren't necessarily changing the management that they were receiving. Um, so, so that, that's definitely an interesting study. Um, and I think we have a lot of research that we need to do as in, in otolaryngologic community in Thailand to see how we can use newborn hearing screen and how we can use it to actually improve, uh, the care that, that patients get. I think, you know, one thing is, is doing that, that, that hearing screen, but then 
actually getting those patients fail their hearing screen, what are we doing with that? Are we getting them to the appropriate management portals that we need to get them to? And then, so the kids you say when you uh, present to you, they're a little bit older. Are you are you saying like uh, four years old? You know, how, how old usually are they when, sure. by the time they get to you? So the, the kids that come to me, they're probably around, I think it's uh, just really a plethora of ages. You know, um, in, in my practice, uh, the earliest that I will do uh, my crochet repair is around the age of, you know, seven or eight, more leaning towards eight. Um, I kind of measure the circumference of the rib cage and see how that impacts it. So, so any kid that comes younger than that, or that I think the rib cage is not uh, an appropriate size and I'm ready to proceed with a microtial repair, I see them on a yearly basis. So I, I guess to answer that question, they're of all ages from like, you know, just a year out from being born, even newborns, or even, you know, a couple months from being born. But then I just end up scheduling to see them on a yearly basis and kind of giving them a plan and giving them information on what microtial repair is all about. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is in Thailand, there's not a lot of microtia surgeons. Uh, and I think partly because, um, and I talked about this with, you know, my co-surgeon is that microtia is a very, um, crumbling experience, you know, for those of us who, you know, have interest in things like left lip and left palate and, and kind of that, uh, craniofacial, uh, aspect surgery, um, there's a lot of surgeons who enjoy to do that. You know, we have plastic surgery, you have oral maxillofacial surgery, and you can do left surgery and have really good results and, you know, feel great. And I think that microtia is a humbling experience because we have some results that, that are very difficult and it's not a, I don't think it's a win-win all the time. And so it, it, I think it definitely took many years to kind of get us to a level that we feel comfortable at. So in that regard, I guess in Thailand and maybe in some parts of the world, there may not be a lot of, you're not competing with other surgeons to, to fix the microtial repair. And, and, you know, like in our practice in Thailand, again, cause most of our patients are, are, um, use the uh, government funding program. I only use rib reconstruction and, and part of that, other than the fact that it was, it was what I was trained in is the fact that you know, uh, a midport implant or a, one of my patients would cost roughly a thousand U.S. dollars out of pocket, which is, uh, just not, not feasible. There are, uh, there are a handful of surgeons that do do, uh, midport microtial repair in Thailand. And, but most of their patient population are going to be those who, who can't afford that. And, and that's a big, it's a steep bill that some of them might get that. You know, some patients might not be able to handle. So I find the um, conversation, like when you have a, a baby or a kid with microtia, and that first initial conversation is always really kind of a hard conversation because there's the microtia part of it, there's the hearing part of it, there's, you know, when you do the surgery part of it and, you know, et cetera, you know, as well as, okay, now in the meantime, before we even get there in terms of are there ways for the hearing What's your, what's the conversation like? What, what do you, you know, because I, I think that it's not something that, you know, unless you are the microtia surgeon, let's say you're just doing general pediatric ENT or 
you might see a handful a year. And so it's not like one of those conversations you just, you know, like the OSA conversation that maybe you have in the back of your hand. You're just used to having your spiel, if you will. Uh, what, what's it? What's what's your take on it? You know, I think it's it's definitely a craft in and of itself to to talk to patients about the diagnosis of microtia because it is so they're they're surprised. So so a lot of you know my patients are diagnosed uh, you know after birth. So there was there was not necessarily like a you know in cleft lip and cleft palate they can can do a prenatal ultrasound and kind of have that in preparation. Um, but a lot of my patients in Thailand uh, know about, find out about microtia right, right when the child's born. Um, so there's that little bit of shock. And I think also microtia is not as common as some of those other congenital deformities in terms of, say, in Thailand, there are cleft Facebook groups of parents that, that you know, encourage and, and send information to other parents about what it's going to be like. And there's not that for microtia. So it's a very select population. Uh, so I think the initial conversa- conversation is definitely difficult in, in first to explain to them about the hearing and explain to them that I think a lot of newborns that, that cannot hear even, you know, if they just fail a, a, a screening exam, it can be hard because the parent just knows it, just assumes that the child cannot hear. And then you haven't even gone to the whole explanation of, okay, you have the, the, the opposite ear, and then there's variations of hearing loss. You know, a screening doesn't, you know, there's so many caveats that, that, that could have caused that screening to have failed. So in a microtia, that's, you know, I think amplified even 10 times. There's no ear there. Or there's just this little nubbin and, and is it some, some, you know, I think it's a very specific thing that doesn't have a lot of relevant information that's in the public eye. So I think you have to be able to kind of summarize that in some way they can understand. I think that's one aspect. I think they're more concerned about the hearing, to be honest. I think sometimes, at least in Thai culture, they maybe assume that the this little nubbin will, will grow with the child and maybe at one point in time it will be this this ear of some 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 nature so i think explaining to them that you know first of all i think most parents are want to know what what they, what my child's future is going to be like and i think explaining to them that they will be able to hear especially with you know the contralateral ear they'll be able to develop speech etc there should be no implications to that I think they're definitely comforted by that in and of itself. And then cosmetic aspect of not having a pinna comes a little bit later. And I think my initial stages, I just explained to them that you don't need to worry about this right now. Like this is something that uh, we can do our best to kind of fix and recreate so that he can, he or she can have a somewhat of an ear in the future, but you do not need to worry about that now. And that's kind of where I start that initial, especially if it's the initial encounter. I don't, I want to just tease their fears. And then as I see them on a yearly basis, it becomes a little bit more routine. And then we can then talk about, okay, so when he's seven years from now, we can start talking about what surgery would be like if that's something you want to do. You don't have to do surgery. It's just an option. And then also 
you don't know what your child's going to be like in, in, in seven or eight years if he want he or she wants to do surgery because I think that's also a key component. So, so in the initial stages, I just try to alleviate their fears and alleviate their fears of, I think the hearing loss is the biggest, biggest thing that, that concerns them. And um, when you see them annually, are you getting hearing te- like audiograms as well? Or what, what, do, what do you do in terms of the non-microtic ear? I feel like that's kind of the focus, right? Um, yeah. In term- and, you know, to make sure that that ear in terms of hearing yeah. stays good, if you will. So for, my, for me personally, I, I just get an audiogram of the, the contralateral ear. Um, and then, you know, like I said, in the initial kind of examination, we do have an ABR to realize that there's some other cause for that, for that child's uh, failed hearing screen, but I don't necessarily repeat that later on. Um, I will say there probably are other otolaryngologists in Thailand that they will do a repeat um, ABR even for that the microtic ear, but, but in my practice, I don't. And I guess depending on the age, the ABR, I mean, if you can get them young, you might do the NAT, but are the AVRs then usually sedated? And is that something that's easy or hard to get? So, so AVRs are very, there's a huge weight um, in Thailand because, you know, what's interesting, Thailand is a country of about 65 to 70 million people. There's one audiology graduate, like a one audiology program in the, the entire country. So all the audiologists for Thailand come from one university. Um, so there is a little bit of a uh, lack of the number of audiologists and, you know, that have specialized training to do an ABR. And I think we even have automated ABRs that you don't have to have all of the understanding behind to, to, to complete. But number one, ABRs, yeah, are, are, are difficult. They're not difficult to get, but there's a, there's a weight. Uh, so the weight is anywhere from a minimum of two months up to sometimes up to six months. And I think that is obviously because there's a lack of audiologists in a country of uh, so many people with one university program. Um, in terms of sedated ABRs, um, we do a lot of, we do use a lot of sedation in Thailand. And this was something new that I learned in the United States that we never did because, you know, in the United States, they would commonly have the child like not sleep, and then uh, come come to the to the audiology clinic and be just bonked out and able to do, and that's not done here. So so coral hydrate is commonly prescribed to do any type of ABR in Thailand. So when I was at the children's hospital, and it's interesting because when I was at the children's hospital, the ENT had to write for coral hydrate, and I was super concerned because I didn't I didn't had never heard of coral hydrate. Like this is what you normally do. And like, how much do I have to write for it and, and stuff? And so, yeah, you had to, and the dose is like half of the weight of the kid and they would schedule the kid. They would come to see you first. You would give them coral hydrate and then they would be kind of out and do their ABR and then that would be done. Yeah. So that's probably oh, wow. a big different thing from. So it's just in the clinic and you've prescribed them the coral hydrate yeah. and. Yeah, it should hopefully last. You know, yeah, and then it, if it, are if we monitor? Are you putting like? Uh, no, is, are they monitored like Sats and all that kind of stuff? No. Okay, they're, they 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 go downstairs and 
it's different from different hospitals. So when I was at the children's hospital, they would come to you when they have their scheduled appointment for the ABR in the morning, the child's NPO, you write for them to get the chlorohydrate. They go and pick up the medicine. They come back, they take the medicine and then they're just out. And then they go into the, uh, the audiology room to get their ABR. If the child wakes up and like you notice that they can't, they're not going to go to sleep, they'll come back to you and then you have to up the dose and then they have to go back down, get some more chlorohydrate, come back up, take it and see if they can can sleep through the entire ABR. Yeah. At the university, it's it's a little bit easier because I can send the, they have us send, send the child to the pediatrician and the pediatrician writes for the chlorohydrate and then gives it to the, to the, to the kid before they come back up for the AVR. So, so yeah, I was definitely new to chloral hydrate and sedation, but, but that's typically how it's done in, in Thailand. So I'm um, just getting a little bit more to like basics. Um, you know, for those of us, again, unless you're studying for in-service or CPO, um, you know, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, grade one is just like a smaller, you know, ear yeah. and grade three is a quote peanut ear. On your exam, what what are you looking for? Like, what are what are you what is like the important things that you're documenting? Um, sure. When yeah. you are looking at. Yeah. So you know, there's all this terminology out there, and um, I think you know initially, and so there's cryptosha, which how I used to remember it when I was in training is that uh, cryptosha is like a cryptic message, and like cryptic means it's you know hidden. So, um, cryptosha usually actually means that the, the framework is actually there, uh, but the superior part is, is kind of tucked underneath the skin. So they say that it's more common in Asian communities, but I, I have never actually seen a cryptosha. I don't, I don't believe. But then when we talk about microtia, uh, there's obviously, um, grade one, two, three, and four, uh, four being anosha with obviously there's no ear at all. Uh, most of my patients are grade three. Uh, grade three means a peanut ear, which uh, we all learned about in, in residency. And then you're left with kind of grade one and grade two. Grade one means that typically kind of, you know, the superior aspect may be uh, a little bit malformed, or a little bit smaller, or underdeveloped. And then grade two is a progression of that. That could include, you know, some of the, uh, the midpole of the pinna. I think in my practice, and this is also something interesting to talk about with building a practice, since I, I still consider myself in the early stages of building my kosher practice over six or seven years, I'm wary to do anything for a grade two microtia. So I would say almost 100% of my patients are, are grade three, um, because I think grade two, I, I'm very apprehensive a little bit that because sometimes they have, you know, that lower kind of two thirds of the ear, which looks really good. And so it's really that upper, upper portion of whether or not I can, with a framework and with recreating it with red, uh, achieve something that's significantly better than, than what they have. So, so I consider myself as in the, the younger group of microtia surgeons that, that now I primarily do grade three, but as, you know, years pass and I, I kind of pass that belt that I think I'm okay with uh, then pursuing some of those grade two crochet repairs. And 
you know, I think we were usually getting like in terms of more starting to kind of think surgery, we were getting like CT temporal bones, probably between the ages of four and six, just to see what the middle ear looked like. Is that uh, even necessary if yeah, atresia, plasty, baja, those kinds of things aren't always, not baja, but atresia, plasty, not always um, an option or are you all yeah. getting imaging? Yeah, I think in 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 my experience, um, even you know when I had newly came, a lot of the microtia patients were getting CT scans to evaluate, you know, the the middle ear and the inner ear, even at a young age where they wouldn't necessarily be a candidate for atresioplasty yet. I, for the most part, have not been ordering a CT scan if I know that they are not yet to pursue an atresioplasty. And I think that might just be my personal preference. And, and partly because in a resource limited uh, setting, I try to hopefully, you know, if I, if it's not going to change what I tell my patient or what they're going to do, then I would usually hold off on it. But I think that's a little bit more specific to Thailand and working with a, a specific population of mine. Yeah. And so um, now let's say they're, you know, that seven to eight year old age. Um, I think that's when you mentioned that that's a, that's when you like to kind of start considering surgery or yeah. operating on these patients. For the grade three patients, how many stages do you usually, <laughs> you know, in terms of how many stages and how far apart and what are you doing at, in your practice? Sure. So, um, you know, I think Gopi, you asked this a little bit earlier and I kind of failed to mention the other things that I kind of pay attention to was, apart from grading uh, the, the ear, I think a big part of what I spend time with is talking to the parents and talking to the families of if this is something that they actually want to pursue. If, and secondly, is this something that the child wants to pursue? Because I think at that age, you really have to have a kid that is willing to do this surgery and willing to undergo all of the post-operative care that it requires. And willing to undergo, you know, having a rib harvest, because I think that's probably the most painful aspect of, of the surgery. And, you know, when I was in training, uh, we had things like like a pain pump for, for some of these kids that they could use to help alleviate some of the pain. And in Thailand, we don't ha really have a lot of those resources at the university. So, so I have to know if this is a kid that's going to wince every time I walk into the room or if this is a kid that's going to be able to, to kind of tough it out a little bit, you know, with all of the routine pay uh, that goes with uh, a, a surgical uh, intervention. So there's that aspect. The other thing, uh, like I had mentioned beforehand, is, is I, I do measure the rib cage and kind of get a good evaluation of whether or not I think they're going to have enough rib that's able to reproduce, uh, you know, the pinna, the framework. Um, so I usually, my cutoff is around 60 centimeters. And then really those are, those are, those are the, I think the key factors, you know, whether or not I think that kid has enough rib, whether or not the, I think that kid is emotionally and socially willing to undergo a big surgery. And what I think about uh, the support of the, the family, you know, it's interesting. I had a case that we were going to do and actually it was, it was going to be the perfect thing because uh, Dr. Rubenstein was visiting Thailand and I said, hey, this is one of my first cases. You can come with me and you can be kind of like walk me through. We're going to do all of this stuff 
together. And then what happened is at the very last minute, the the family called and said, the grandparent doesn't want this done. And so we had to cancel surgery, cancel everything. So um, there is that aspect. And I think that that is one thing I want to try to avoid, obviously, and, and making sure everybody who is relevant to that kid in that kid's ear is is agreeable to pursue surgery. Did you do you find that um, compared to like your experience in fellowship in California uh, to the patients that you're seeing um, in Thailand, are there uh, overall like what kind of cultural differences have you run into a lot of that in terms of okay, I've now I've had to change the way I explain things or change the way I um, communicate or have you ha- have you noticed any of that? I mean, do you speak Thai fluently? Yeah. I think I had to change everything. You know, I think I do speak Thai fluently, but native Thai speakers know that I have an accent. So they know that there is something a little bit odd uh, about me when I speak Thai. Um, So there's that aspect, but they understand. I think the other thing is it's a very familial community, which a lot of Asian cultures, we see families come together all the time for all of the care that they get at the hospital. So, you know, an elderly patient will always have their son or daughter accompanying them, which might not be as common in, 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 in other cultures. And I think that aspect carries on into my practice in pediatric patients because, like I had said previously, everybody in the family needs to be on board with the surgery because if the grandparent who is the primary caretaker even though they live separately from the parents, say no, then then you just wasted however long speaking to the mom because the mom is not going to make that final decision. It's it's grandma. So I think, you know, there's that aspect of it. Um, and really, uh, you know, I think there's also an educational gap in um, a lot of patients that might not be as prevalent in in the U.S. So... Apart from like translating things in my head into Thai and then using kind of the language that uh, my patients can understand and understand easily. So, so I definitely had, it took a very long time to, to do that and in, not just in my crochet, but for just care in general as a pediatric otolaryngologist. Just going back uh, to in terms of surgery, do you are you usually do two stages or how oh, many sorry, stages yeah. do you or does it just depend? Usually, I I kind of break it up into three stages. There is, you know, the Nagata method, which he has kind of mastered into breaking it down to just two stages. I think my surger, surgeries that that we have done and continue to do are. are primarily two-stage surgeries. And then stage three is pretty much limited to very minor cosmetic detail that that I will kind of talk about with the patient and talk about with the family to see if that's something that they want to pursue, if they have any little things that they would like to adjust. Um, you know, for for my patients, you know, stage one, you know, we it takes about the whole day. Um, we, you know, harvest the rib, uh, create the framework, um, and then um, recreate, you know, pinna, and then uh, kind of uh, put it underneath the pocket uh, of skin. Um, and then in 
I wait typically three months and then we schedule for stage two. Stage two for us, we actually, uh, this is a little bit different than, than what I had done in, in fellowship, but we actually kind of, in all of our cases, uh, bring down a temporal parietal fascial flat down. Um, and then we uh, make a posterior incision behind our framework, elevate it up. And then we also take an additional rib harvest if we were not able to bank enough from the previous surgery. So we are enough able to have banked enough from the previous surgery. We use that for the to kind of elevate the ear off of the yeah. uh, the mastoid. And then we'll bring the TPF flap down to kind of cover cover that. Um, and then we'll take full thickness skin graft from from the the ipsilateral groin and use that for the for the posterior kind of to recreate the the back of the ear and the the crevice. And then that's our stage two. And then we wait uh, an additional three months and then depending on if the patient wants any other adjustments, we'll do a stage three. And that's pretty much just making very minor cosmetic adjustments in details. And um, after stage one, uh, are you? do you end up having to put, do you do like a certain size drain that you use? Do you um, get a chest x-ray? What's your, after stage one, your routine post-op stuff that you get? So routinely for after stage one, um, we do use a, um, we obviously have, we actually have two drains. Uh, we have a drain that's placed anteriorly in front of the framework, and then we have a drain that's placed posteriorly um, behind uh, the framework as well. We I typically use like a Jackson Pratt drain on that posterior one. Um, and then we use a very small, like a little accordion drain that that kind of helps suck down the skin onto the framework as well. But most of it, I think, is is the JP drain doing its work. And then post-op, we will get a post-operative chest x-ray routinely. Prior to incision closure of the rib graft, um, we will inject lidocaine at the site because we have shown we have been been able to sh- see in our patients if we do that they were able to not have so much pain initially postoperatively and they were actually a- able to be a little bit more uh, ambulatory but we just do an initial chest x-ray you know i do put a dressing on the ear we uh use kind of vaseline gauze around the entire ear and then we put a mastoid dressing uh, for 24 hours, then the resident will take it off in the morning, and then I will kind of monitor the drains. So in Thailand, really anybody who has a drain, we're very reluctant to send them home, uh, just because uh, the care and the wound care, and knowing that they're going to have someone to be able to to look after it, um, which I know is different from from in, in the West. So they'll stay in house until that drain is removed. So usually some of for a stage one, most of my patients will stay um, anywhere from, you know, three to four days. And for the most part, we're waiting for the drain to uh, decrease, you know, kind of less than 10 cc in a 24-hour period before we remove it. Um, and then obviously we have a drain in, in the chest wound as well. And then kind of the standard drain care for that too. So, so one of the, usually it's going to be... Um, I'll keep the drain in the ear a little bit longer just so that I'm a little bit more confident that everything is kind of uh, sucked down and secure in place. Yeah, so that's kind of the routine post-operative care, I think. That's awesome. So as we start wrapping this up, Dave, 
What are, you know, for somebody that's starting out wanting to do my crochet, uh, what kind of advice do you have? Or what's the most important thing or pearl that you've learned so far um, in building this program in Thailand? Sure. You know, I think for me is having a, a co-surgeon. I think that was just one of the smartest things that you can do, especially in the initial stages. And I think a lot of places all around the world who do my crochet repair, they, a lot of them do it as a, as a team, as a, as a, when I say team, not just a team of audiologists and, and other ancillary uh, individuals that are helping take care of the patient, but as a, as a team of surgeons. Um, I think it reduces the time in the operating room um, because you're able to simultaneously do a rip harvest while you're preparing the site for the microtia. Uh, you're preparing the pocket, preparing the ear once the harvest harvested rib is already out, they're already able to start, you know, getting that aspect closed. So you can, you can definitely reduce the times that the kids in surgery. And, and you can also, I think, improve the outcome because you're working in tandem together. And then all the little increases that go with, with recreating a framework, um, you can bounce things off of each other all the time. So I think that's number one. Uh, I think number two is it takes a while to find your groove. And I think, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of my focus was really on grade three, my crochet repairs. So I wanted to be able to, to achieve something that, that my patients were happy with and we got good results before I wanted to venture into something a little bit more difficult, like I think grade two is. Uh, so that's kind of the second, second aspect. And then it's a humbling experience. So I think Knowing and understanding that will help you be able to grow a practice, to be able to to build a practice is, is to know that, you know, I learn something every day. Um, you know, we did a microtia in stage three on this past Friday and this upcoming Friday, we have a stage three again, and we learn from each case that we do. And, you know, what's interesting is that rib, I think, is very hard to predict, the rib that you're going to get out of a patient is very hard to predict. No matter how many times you measure it, no matter, I don't think you can never predict the pliability of the rib. You can never predict how it's going to, to react to you carving on it. Um, so I think knowing that uh, might, uh, might allow you to, to prepare for that maybe or just prepare, prepare for it. things. You know, I've had instances where Parts of the rib like cracked and how do you go about managing and how we are going to salvage that. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, in medicine we learn every day and I think my crochet is not different from, from what we do in medicine. We have to kind of continue to keep on mastering these, these things that we are left to, to try to treat. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dave. I'm so glad we got to connect again. It's been way too long. I love what you're doing. I think it's amazing. And it's great to, that you're being able to also just build um, a program there and contribute to education and training there and be a part of the community. For listeners that might have questions for you, are you on social media or uh, is there a way in which if somebody has a question, um, they, obviously they're welcome to reach out to us on Backtable and we can um, connect them to you as well. Yeah, um, my email, anyone can, you know, contact me by my email. It's uh, my name, D-H-A-V-E dot 
C-I-C-M at gmail.com. Otherwise, um, I do have a Twitter account that I don't think anybody follows, but that's just because I don't really know how to do social media that well. Um, and I don't really know how to post and like, I don't really know hashtags and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, that email, I'm probably a little bit old fashioned in, 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 in our generation, but emails is a good way to go. But uh, I want to thank Gopi again for inviting me. You know, I've been following the back table for some time, kind of ever since you started it. And, uh, you know, I've been envious of this, this great professional thing that you developed. And I think it's definitely awesome and also just great to kind of catch up. The other thing that I think is funny is that I remember when I met Gopi, the, the thing that she had told me is that we bonded on the fact that she had been to Thailand and I think you spent some time in Thailand and that people just assume that you were Thai because you kind of have um, kind of uh, that Thai features. Yeah. yeah. People are and, so nice to me. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so um, yeah, I remember all of that. So to see you, you know, 12 years later and, and have these, all this develop this great thing that I think helps a lot of, you know, ENTs out there. And I think it's just fun is, is pretty awesome. So thank you again for having me and I appreciate it. I feel special. Aww, thank you, Dave. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.